From KIOS in Omaha and Exorbin Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, I have a conversation with author Theodore Wheeler, whose new novel, In Our Other Lives, is available wherever you get books. Getting to know someone in a deeply personal way or spying on them during deeply personal moments doesn't necessarily reveal too much about, you know, what they're feeling or what they're thinking. You know, it can, but then again, you know, trying to apply that to the wider world and what that means for their public persona, like, doesn't always connect in those ways. In Our Other Lives is set right after the passing of the Patriot Act. And Wheeler discusses today being drawn to writing throughout his youth, contextualizing Omaha history in his first novel, and the attempt to contextualize the 21st century in his latest. Stick around for that conversation right here on Riverside Chats. If you're a fan of Riverside Chats and want to see the show not only continue but expand in new spin-off shows including a film club, a book club, and a news roundup, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash riversidechats. For as low as just $1 a month, you get access to exclusive audio as well as our full backlog of episodes. Our most recent 50 are always free. Older than that goes behind the paywall. So you get that plus exclusive content over at patreon.com slash riversidechats. Please consider becoming a patron today. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock, and today I have a conversation with Theodore Wheeler, author, roving bookseller, college professor, pub quiz host, and legal reporter from Omaha, Nebraska. He previously wrote a book called Kings of Broken Things, which was about the race riots in Omaha about 100 years ago. He also has a collection of short fiction called Bad Faith, and his newest book is called In Our Other Lives, which came out earlier this year. It's now available wherever you get your books. And I think it's a good book for 2020. It's one of the few that can capture just how difficult it is for people to make connections. I think it's largely a book about the way that we fail to communicate ourselves. And also the, the myriad ways that we try to communicate ourselves, whether that's through data, whether it's through talking to each other, whether it's through any kind of expression you can think of. You might not be able to express yourself and other people, no matter how much data they collect. And it's very much about that as it deals with the war on terror and the passing of the Patriot Act. You can collect as much data as you want, but you might not be able to understand the people or the events right in front of you. Obviously, this podcast, this radio show, is a large part my way of trying to understand people and events and history and society. And you, you want to believe that it's possible. You want to believe that all these connections can be formed and that they can be meaningful and that they can be satisfying. And uh, today I've got Theodore Wheeler to throw some cold water on that whole notion. And I, I think it's, a, like I said, I think it's appropriate. I think it was a good book. I, I read it, you know, in the midst of last month, election month. So it, it just seemed like all of this really comes together in a way that is uh, appropriately frustrating. I guess I'll say that much. And uh, Theodore Wheeler is certainly somebody who is interested in some of these big questions. And I don't know if he's found answers. I don't know if we quite got there. In Our Other Lives is available wherever you get books. We do talk about the broad strokes of the plot, but we don't spoil the whole thing. So hopefully this is enticing you to go out and check it out. Here's my conversation with Theodore Wheeler right here on Riverside Chats. I actually wanted to say, you know, reading it this month, uh, you know, it's sort of like reading this story that's sort of uh, bleak and about all these sort of like rudderless Americans who want to believe in something like the government and kind of hope that there's adults who know what's going on and not necessarily finding those answers. It it felt uh, very appropriate to read in October 2020. Yeah. It kind of is. I think I'm trying to remember when I stopped writing it. It must have been 
towards the end of 2018, I guess. So definitely some some influence of that in there. <laughs> well, it, I mean, obviously it takes place. It's more of a post 9-11 book uh, in actual content. So, I mean, uh, was, I guess, before we go all the way back and get some of the life story, I'm curious why said it specifically then, other than, I mean, the plot deals with sort of the, the fear of Middle East terrorism and radicalization. And so, like, what was drawing you to that in the Patriot Act as a setting for the book? I think specifically writing in 2005, 2008, just seemed like kind of the middle ground between the Patriot Act passing and 9-11 happening and... 2014 is when I started writing the book, but that's when Edward Snowden, of course, revealed how much uh, the government was spying on us. So it's kind of, in some ways, a more innocent time than 2014 was, for sure. Uh, but it also wasn't, you know, it was still far enough from 9-11 that I feel like, you know, we still had those fears, but it wasn't quite so desperate of a time. So I wanted that kind of, like, sneaky, sneaky kind of sense of security for the characters, um, which seem to be the most appropriate for uh, a spying book. Well, it's interesting to call it a spying book because, I mean, you got the the government or the FBI, uh, what do I want to say, like the documents, the report is sort of the framing device for it. But it feels like at the same time, you're kind of acknowledging that even if you have all of the information, sort of this, like this, uh, this God of a panopticon, it doesn't really give you the answers you're looking for a lot of the time. Uh, is, is, oh no yeah is that something I mean, there is it's almost like too much information like at a certain point and like that's kind of the struggle of it i did a lot of research on uh east germany in the 1960s and 70s um somewhere because i was in germany when i started writing the book but especially then it just seemed like that was so much of the problem for them that you know they were recording pretty much everything that was happening among their citizenry but then, like, what do you actually do with this information? Like, what is the point of having it? Well, and it seems like in the book, you've got the specific concern of you can know everything about a person's actions, but it doesn't necessarily help you know them as a person. Uh, like, you, right. it's hard to understand each other, no matter how much data you have. I was just thinking about that with, especially with, like, this notion of other lives, too, and like getting to know someone in a deeply personal way or spying on them during deeply personal moments doesn't necessarily reveal too much about, you know, what they're feeling or what they're thinking. Um, you know, it can, but then again, you know, trying to apply that to the wider world and what that means for their public persona, like doesn't always connect in those ways. Yeah. It seems like the novel is a bunch of missed connections. And is that, is that something that the sort of inability to connect, but also that drive to try to find a way to connect. Is that something you've been interested in for a while? Yeah, I think that's kind of the heart of the story where actually the two main characters, so Elizabeth and Nick, uh, who were married uh, briefly in the novel, like I've been writing them for, I don't, I don't know, geez, like 15 years or so. Um, so I'd spent a lot of time thinking about their story. And at the heart of that was always, this kind of notion that when, you know, when you love someone, but you can't really connect with them or you love them, but you can't be with them and what that means and the lengths people go to try to preserve that connection or at what point do people just have to let go. So did they originate as part of a different project or was it just sort of like notes for what would become this? What were you doing then? They were actually the main characters in the first short story I ever published uh, back in 2007. 
Uh, so it's been a long time. Probably written about eight short stories with them, always thinking that I'd like to do something longer, um, a novel or a series of short stories. But it never just really came together. I think a lot of the times it just felt way too sentimental that the storytelling just, I don't know, it just didn't quite have that edge or relevance where it's, you know, just kind of like, oh, am I just writing another breakup story or like writing another alcoholic story or something like that where, you know, I've read a hundred of stories that are just like that. Um, so in 2014, when I started writing again, kind of overlaid this FBI spy you know, kind of a frame over the top of it. It just seemed to give the story a new kind of voice and a new angle that uh, really worked for me. And uh, I always sort of try to, when I, when you talk to a lot of Nebraska artists, the the ones who incorporate Nebraska into their work, a lot of the time you get, you know, like your Alexander Payne's or sort of like these sort of wry explorations of the Midwest. Whereas yours, I mean, maybe there's some elements, but for the most part, you've got a lot else, a lot of other things on your mind and you connect it obviously to this uh, sort of global context as opposed to something that's specifically Nebraskan. So, I mean, how do you sort of balance the Nebraska element of your fiction with all the other, whether it's genre or just different places that you want to include? Yeah, I think a lot of times my fiction does kind of portray Nebraska in a little bit more of a sinister kind of way. That just that underbelly of it Maybe, I don't know, maybe that's just the corollary to the kind of like wry humor, self-deprecating humor, uh, the Nebraska niceness. But, it, you know, plenty of weird stuff happens here as it does anywhere else. So it's like, where does that kind of instinct come from, too? Um, so I think those are things, I don't know, that I usually do like to portray. Like in my first novel, Kings of Broken Things, like was based around uh, the lynching of Will Brown uh, and what happened in 1919 downtown. So... And I was, just, I was just kind of pushing towards that, like trying to maybe dig up those darker things and and figure out like what they mean to us as a people. Are you from Nebraska originally? Uh, so I was born in Council Bluffs, but I've mostly lived in Nebraska pretty much my whole life. Did you ever want to escape? What brought you here? I mean, what made you stay here? Um, that's a good question. I think like in some ways I've probably spent like most of my life trying to find ways out in different <laughs> ways. Um I'm not really sure. Like, I think I do feel like really comfortable here in a lot of ways, but maybe just wanted to experience something else. Um, I mostly grew up in Lincoln. So like living in Omaha the last decade, like that does feel really different. Uh, when I was a little kid, I lived in a small town called Geneva, which was only like 2000 people. So I do feel like I've experienced a lot of the different gradations of Nebraska and Nebraskaness. Um, but I don't know, it is an interesting place. And I think as, a, as an artist specifically and a writer, uh, it's an interesting place to write about because there are a lot of different levels, but also it, it isn't like super well-trod territory at the same time, which I always appreciate uh, that there are new things to write about, um, you know, even historically and, and currently too. So were you a bookworm as a kid? Uh, I mostly read comic books when I was a kid uh, until I was 17 or so. But I, I was always reading, I guess, but I just wasn't that interested in books for a long time. Well, so when did the literature and writing and, you know, prose enter into that? Yeah, I, it was around junior year of high school. I had taken a AP lit class and we had just read a bunch of books like uh, The Great Gatsby and uh, Allende's House of Spirits and a few other novels that I just really connected with a lot. And I don't think I'd ever read anything like that before, that it was 
you know, I don't know, it was just a really exciting, it felt like a really exciting novel to read that and seemed like something that had a lot more potential and was a little cooler than I thought before. Um, where it always, like I was making comics all the times too, but I, I can't really draw. Um, so that somewhat limited what I could do with a comic book. Um, so at that time I just started writing poetry at first and some shorter stories and just kind of playing around with it. And I think, you know, it's just kind of most people, like you do something and you do it kind of well and people praise you. So you do it more and you just kind of keep going as long as you keep being fed towards it. Um, so I don't know, 20 years later, I feel like I'm somewhat still on that path of just, you know, staying, staying with it and keeping going, uh, you know, because it's working. Well, so poetry strikes me as a really brave thing to do as a new writer. You know, it's a, it's sort of, it's so open and so earnest a lot of the time. I mean, you don't, I guess there's some degree of like cryptic poetry, but just what you choose to put in a poem seems really, uh, you know, it makes you very vulnerable, I feel like. And uh, a lot of people never get comfortable reading poetry, let alone writing it. So, I mean, what, what pushed you to start writing it? I think that's what I kind of liked about it was the vulnerability where I was never grew up like in a family that was very artistic or that really engaged that kind of communication. Um, most of my life was, you know, just kind of dreaming about playing football for Notre Dame or something like that. Um, but, you know, realizing that wasn't going to happen, I think there were just different parts that I, parts of me that I wanted to express more. Um, notably, like when I was in junior high, uh, a cousin of mine died suddenly and tragically. And I think, you know, six years after that, when I started writing poetry, that was the thing where it's just, I needed some way to talk about that. And I just didn't really have that in anywhere else in my life that I felt comfortable doing with it. So it was kind of a way just to show that, you know, that I, that I was vulnerable, uh, that I wasn't, you know, such a, a tough guy about everything. What poetry were you drawn to? Um, I mean, some of like the beat poets, I mean, like reading Hal a lot. And again, you know, it's just kind of like that more like raw expression of emotion mm -hmm. uh, was really attractive, especially at that age. And so people responded well to it and that inspired you to keep going or at least take writing more seriously? Yeah, I did. Um, I started writing journalism then um, or wrote for the school newspaper and had a, a great teacher, Mrs. Holt, uh, who was really encouraging. Uh, then when I went off to college at UNL, um, I actually had started in journalism, but it didn't really click as much there. And then I moved over to the English department and creative writing. Uh, but along the way, just had different professors who, you know, just would kind of pull me aside every now and then just like, you know, you, this is good. You know, if you keep working at this, maybe you can make it into something, you know, really good. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Theodore Wheeler, whose new novel In Our Other Lives is available wherever you get books. Was I mean, that that's a kind of a scary decision, though, right? To become a writer professionally is a, is a sort of daunting task to set out for yourself. So was it something where you were... I don't know. I mean, were there were there rough spots? Where is it something where you just sort of knew it was going to be a grind until you got there? Or what was your process? Yeah, I think I don't know. It is tough because I I think about this sometimes and just how many coincidences and the timing of things played out where, you know, I probably would have quit, you know, a hundred different times if something didn't happen. But I had mentioned, you know, like getting my first short story published and like I was only 23 at the time. Uh, so I was pretty excited about that happening. Although at that age, that also feels kind of old in a weird way where it's like, oh, I'm almost 25 and I haven't done anything with my life yet. 
Um, but I, at that time, I was wavering back and forth on whether I should go to law school or if I should uh, get an MA or go to grad school for English and for writing. And grad school or law school seemed kind of interesting, uh, but I didn't really ever see myself as a lawyer. But it was also hard to tell my parents or to tell like my grandparents that I'm not going to law school, even though I got in because I want to go do this writing thing instead. But so getting that publication helped. And then a couple of years after that, I got into a national anthology for like the best college writing in the country. So then I could point to that and just say like, hey, you know, I'm doing this. Like it just gave me an excuse uh, to keep going with it. Um, and then getting an agent after that. And it's like, well, you know, I'm only a couple steps away from a book and whatever that means. Um, so that helps a lot. I think, especially after I, my wife and I had our first child, uh, when we had our daughter, Maddie, uh, it helped a lot because then my mother-in-law helped us take care of her. And I was in grad school at the time. Uh, so I didn't have to quit grad school to go get a job, but I could kind of point to these things where I was saying, you know, my art's progressing, you know, like, People are reading my stuff and they're they're liking it. Uh, so then my family would help out a lot, uh, and my mother-in-law was you know great during those years. It gave me so much more time to write. Where if it wasn't for her, you know, then I probably wouldn't have been able to do this. Well, it's funny you mentioned the feeling like you haven't done anything by twenty-five or whatever, because I I feel like there's this paradox, which is you want to be you know one of those prodigies who hits it really big when you're like eighteen or nineteen, but at the same time, a lot of people just aren't going to take you seriously, even if you're turning out something that's really good. The fact that you're eighteen, nineteen, twenty, it's just like, well, whatever, you know, talk to me in five, six, ten years, whatever. Uh, yeah. So when you uh, were putting together the first book, what drew you to William Brown? So I'd actually first heard about Will Brown in the fourth grade where our, my homeroom teacher had showed us that famous picture from the World Herald where it's his burnt body and the, the crowd of white people kind of celebrating behind him. Uh, I'm not sure like exactly why he showed us that at such a young age. I think it was the same year that uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X film came out. Um, so that was kind of like moved towards it, especially since Omaha is part of that movie, a kind of notorious part of that story, Malcolm X's story. Um, so I had that. Then I guess it would be what about like 15 years later when I moved to Omaha, um, I was walking around where I usually walk a lot just to kind of place myself. And especially then when I just moved here, uh, but I walked by the courthouse and noticed that it was covered with nets all around it and just thought that was kind of weird. So I looked up about why they had nets and the, the website I found said it was because of the riot to keep people from smashing out windows and, and setting the courthouse on fire like it happened in 1919. Uh, the real answer is to keep pigeons off the building, uh, which is a little less exciting, but uh, more practical. <laughs> um, anyway, so you know, I, I just kind of got into that, uh, remembering about that happened here, that there was a, a notorious lynching in Omaha, and actually two of them, uh, which there was just a couple of weeks ago, uh, a ceremony to mark George Smith, who was lynched on the same spot in 1891. Um, so I, I think some of it was just moving here, wanting to learn about where I was living and getting into the research, and then just thinking about how different that was than how we typically think of Nebraska, uh, how we typically, typically think of the Midwest. Um, so I, just wanted to think about that story too and just like get a little deeper into it and think about like who were the people in that photo that were you know posing behind Will Brown's dead body and you know it's something I thought about a lot when I was writing the book of their descendants still live in Omaha which I'm sure some do 
but like what does that mean for us and like what like how do we want to frame that or reframe that because we do have that ability now you know the people living here now where we don't have to try to bury that history um and we certainly don't have to accept it so i think that was some of the book just trying to to reframe you know white omahans in a way and how we fit into the the will brown story i feel like that story uh is it's difficult especially someone who lives in omaha you know uh like i saw the the bowfield berry play about it last year the red summer yeah it was great it was great and i i was interviewing her a couple days after i saw it and i accidentally just i don't know i just randomly ended up sitting right behind her and i hadn't met her yet and so i remember thinking like oh this is great i'll be able to go talk to her a little bit before we do the interview but then the play was just so powerful and just you know acknowledging all that it was just like i don't know if i'm ready to talk to anybody for a long time after this so that then you know, I'm driving home and I have to drive through downtown Omaha and it's just, it's, it's sort of like inescapable. Uh, I mean, you know that those things happen. I was sort of like you in that I had seen the picture, but I hadn't really given him, uh, you know, thought about him as a real human in the way that that play sort of mm-hmm. helped me do that. But so, I mean, for you, did that change your relationship to Omaha to do all that and sort of immerse yourself and look into that void for so long to write the book? Oh Yeah. During the whole time I was writing the book, I worked as a reporter at the courthouse. So every single day I'd walk down there and especially when I was working on those parts of the book, just thinking about, well, this happened on this corner and this happened on this corner. And it's like, oh, there's the window they tried to throw him out of or, you know, just all these things. Once I knew those little details about it that I couldn't forget them, you know, and once I was on the spot, I just kind of relive it all the time, uh, which is how trauma works, of course. Um, But I thought, you know, that was a big part of it, I guess, you know, probably why I started writing the book in the first place, too, that, you know, once I knew it, like, I couldn't forget that. And I was just in the spot so much. Um, So I think, you know, I was just trying to recreate that a lot. Um, I love Red Summer, Bo Berry's play so much, too, because I think it did just thinking about it as a compliment to where maybe in some ways my book was deficient because I uh, didn't spend that much time with Will Brown as a person. And um I guess I, I like kind of shied away from that because I didn't want to appropriate his story and didn't kind of want to assume that America really wanted my opinion on what it's like to be black in America. Um, but I thought, you know, at the same time, seeing Red Summer, seeing the play and how beautiful that was and also horrifying, uh, but how much it humanized Will Brown and made him into a real person. Um, I thought it was so powerful too. Yeah, I was the same way where it's just, you know, I think I went there for a preview and it was like, there was a big reception after and all this, but like everybody was just stunned to silence. It was the worst party I've ever been to. But <laughs> I mean, that, that speaks to its power though. You know, I mean, that means she did a good job. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, uh, as, so I guess at that book, because it's historical, I mean, people have sort of, I don't know, it's, they have tricky relationships with reading historical books. And I imagine it's difficult to write one because you have, a lot to focus on. Uh, it's not the, quite the same thing as the blank page of fiction, but I mean, how did you go about figuring out how to frame it, how to make it work for an audience where it's not going to be too academic, but it still lands the punch you want and is informational in the way that you want it to be? How did you go about writing it? So I kind of, when I started, I would just have these guideposts where I knew I wanted to end at the the lynching in 1919. Um, it seemed like another big point was when the election of 1918, which is when the Denison machine lost power. So that's kind of what led to the lynching happening and the riot happening. 
And I also wanted to start or I wanted to start the book in April 1917, which is when the U.S. declared war on Germany. Um, so I knew I wanted to tie it somewhat to a lot of family history I knew about where Germans were really demonized and the culture were being attacked on the street. Um, so I wanted to talk about that and kind of tie it in where it didn't seem like the Red Summer could happen if it didn't come right after World War One. So I needed some way to to make people feel that that there was just so much so much belligerence in our culture at that point um, and desperation and hunger, lack of resources and, and fighting going on. So setting these characters in the middle of a German American immigrant community in the heart of Omaha seemed like the best way to do that. And especially when I started writing the book, which which was 2008, 2009. There was a lot of stuff in the news, which the the Minutemen, which is a, a moniker that groups take on, seems like every 20 years or so, uh, but they were an anti-Mexican group at the time that was trying to stop all Mexican immigration. But there were Minutemen during World War One as well who were instrumental in getting the U.S. into the war. So I think those were kind of the things I was thinking about at the time. But it was really difficult to to just keep a handle on it because there were just so many interesting things where he'd read 20, 25 books on the history. And it's like, oh, I need to put this in. Oh, I need to put this in. Uh, so the first draft was just really kind of horrible because it was it was more history book than it was novel. And it took me a couple of years to like say, like, well, I don't need this to happen. Like people don't need to know about this. Like it's like people know enough about Charlie Chaplin already. Like I don't have to go there. Um, and then, you know, creating space for the story and for my characters to exist in that time and to exist in Omaha in that historical space. Um, so that was probably the hardest thing, just remembering that my job was to tell a story, first of all, and then whatever historical flavor, whatever facts I could mix into that was great, but it wasn't, you know, job number one. I'm talking today with Theodore Wheeler author of the new novel In Our Other Lives, about a bunch of people trying to figure out what's going on, who are they, who are the people around them, and solving a central mystery connected to the war on terror shortly after the passing of the Patriot Act. We'll continue the conversation after this break, right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Theodore Wheeler, author of the new novel In Our Other Lives, about a bunch of people trying to make sense of the world and each other in the midst of the war on terror and the passing of the Patriot Act. In Our Other Lives is available wherever you get books, as is Wheeler's previous novel, Kings of Broken Things, and his short story collection, Bad Faith. Here's the rest of our conversation. Was there pressure to stay with the historical uh, track and to write another book that was in some sort of prominent historical period as opposed to something that's fairly close to contemporary times? A little bit. I think it was because I know like my agent and stuff was like, oh, well, you have this other story or because I had uh, in the original draft of the book, Jake Strauss, who's one of the main characters, there was a ton of stuff about his origin story and how he came to Omaha and his family history and most of that ended up getting cut out of the, the final product. So it was like, oh, well, we have this almost other book here that we can just work on. Um, but I think it didn't really come up as much because just how the process worked for me, where I had mostly finished uh, Kings of Broken Things 
and then had actually been working on in our other lives for about a year before I found a, a publisher for Kings of Broken Things. So I, at least personally, I was so committed to writing this other book that it wasn't, you know, to me, it wasn't much of a, a choice just because I was so far into it and so committed to it. And most of my other writing is contemporary, though, too, like Earth, my short fiction and my first book, uh, which is a collection of stories. Uh, most of it's contemporary, although I think I am mostly known for that historical writing. So it's a little bit of attention there. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, I guess the Bush era seems like it's, you know, two years ago to me still, even though it's, it's definitely not. <laughs> uh, but so when you're trying to figure out uh, what you want to focus this book on and you sort of land on this idea that it's going to be an exploration of Patriot Act or fear of radicalization. I mean, were you, what was it that felt like you could merge those two worlds between you got the relationship idea that you've been working on for a while? Why did it make sense to put it into this sort of geopolitical context? I think it was mostly just thinking about what Snowden revealed at that time. And that was the connection where I guess before Snowden, I always assumed that they had the capability to spy on people all the time if they wanted to. And I had known before that, that the U S government basically records everything that happens on a computer, or on a server within the United States where they keep a copy of it. So I knew that this kind of stuff was going on. It's just, I just never really cared that much because my life is boring. So like if somebody wants to record me and spy on me, like who cares because they're just going to be bored too. But when I started thinking about it with the, the Liz and Nick story, um, with their breakup and their personal tragedy with losing a child, it kind of put a new angle on it where I was just thinking more about that. It was like, well, what if it was like your darkest day, like the most tragic day of your life and someone was watching that and someone's recording that? Like, does that change how you feel about domestic spying? Does that make it seem more of an invasion of privacy or, or not? And I think that was kind of the question that I wanted to ask people where, like, how much did they care about this now? Like, did this change how you feel about it after seeing their story? And yeah, which I think, I mean, that's kind of the base of it for me. Well, and you're, you're kind of back to if, if poetry was sort of the first experiment with writing in a vulnerable way. I mean, these characters are in a position where they can't be anything other than really vulnerable uh, from chapter to chapter. So, I mean, was it, as far as the, the tragedy itself, was that something that you had for 10 years or whatever, as you were working on uh, the two characters? Yeah. So that came out pretty early in the process where, I don't know, I, I just kind of like that idea where like just trying to put as much like complication on character as possible where Flannery O'Connor has this famous line that plot is what you do to a character. So I was trying to think about that a lot where, you know, I had like the, the breakup storyline where a new marriage and the husband runs away. But then it's like, well, how could you make that worse then or make that more dramatic? And it's like, well, what if there's a child in the relationship and he runs away from the infant too? And it's like, well, what if something happens to that infant? Um, so it's just kind of like building that, which I think I do a lot in stories where I just try to put as much on possible on a character uh, either until that character kind of breaks in a way where they reach their limit or if it just feels like it's too much for a story to hold where it's just kind of, I don't know, almost unbelievable in a way or maybe unpalatable in a way to, to read a story where too much bad stuff is happening to one person. 
Was there an iteration where the terrorism angle led to something, I don't know, more overt or tangible or like turned into more of a thriller? Actually, the earlier version had kind of had less of that. So that was the first version I turned into my agent didn't really have much of the terrorism or the Tyler All story in it. Um, but it was her recommendation to kind of like build that out a little bit more and experiment with the character of Tyler, um, which I enjoyed that quite a bit. Like once I started writing about him, who's uh, a character who's raised really religious, who has this sort of vision for a religious theme park that his parents end up building in Wisconsin and then later becomes uh, a missionary in Pakistan and different points in, in Southeast South Asia. Um, but it, I think it was just thinking about characters who believe in something so strongly and just take it so far that it ends up destroying them in a way was a really interesting way to think about it. Cause I feel like I do know people who have done that in their lives, you know, different specifically like artists and musicians who have put everything into, you know, doing their art and trying to, to make a life out of it. Um, but sometimes, you know, it, it just kind of has pushed them over the edge. So it was something that was somewhat personal in a way to think about, uh, but also, you know, it's a great character to write just because they can do so many things and they don't have to be rational. Like you can have them do anything. And it's just like, well, this is an irrational person. So let's see where this goes. Yeah. I mean, the whole book seems pretty bleak about uh, the things that people choose to believe in. Uh, it doesn't go well for most of the characters. No. Yeah. I, I don't know. I kind of think about that because like Elizabeth can sometimes be like the, the counterweight against that where, Although she doesn't, she's not explicit about what she believes in at all. Like she just kind of wants to live her own life, but, but she's mostly, I don't know if it's not for her family members messing it up. I feel like she's pretty good at forming a normal life. I mean, she would have been, is that that she believes in, I don't know, herself or I don't know, some, something about her own autonomy is probably more important to her than the people who sort of find whether it's god whether it's the government to believe in this as, as the thing that will give them meaning yeah i think so i mean just kind of that humanistic idea where you know she believes in in life having value in itself and specifically you know that her life and her life has value even if she isn't you know giving herself away to something but she was i think you know she when she was younger because she was a big soccer star and played on a national team as a teenager and then had a knee injury that made it so she couldn't play soccer anymore at that level. So she had that experience where she had to give up something where, you know, as a teenager, that was her thing that really defined her. Um, but it was taken away from her. So I always felt like that experience kind of helped her become a better adult in a way because she knew how to give things up. She knew how to let go where none of the other characters ever really learned that. So, I, I, this is kind of a shot in the dark, but uh, have you read Moby Dick? Do you have a relationship with Moby Dick at all? I don't. Okay. I, like, <laughs> I, I wish I have had. I don't know. It's, where are you going with this? Well, I, 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 it's one of those things where, uh, you know, like parents tell their kids don't do drugs because it'll mess up your brain and you'll it'll reconfigure everything. For me, reading Moby Dick, I think, did that to me somehow. Uh, like I wasn't even sure I'd like it. And then it just sort of blew my mind. And uh, now I can kind of see Moby Dick and everything I look at. But where I was going with that was it reminded me of reading Moby Dick in the sense that you've got the, the ship, the Pequod, where everybody on that ship is just completely kind of 
rudderless but looking for something to believe in. They're looking for some kind of meaning. And you got a character like Ahab who's just going to gather all those people in. And they're pretty much fine with going along with the mission, even if it's a dumb mission, like a suicidal mission to kill a whale. Uh, is not really going to bring personal happiness to anybody. But everybody's drawn to having some kind of mission to sort of go along with. And I, I thought... There, there seems to be a similar dynamic, at least, that you're engaging with here. Uh, and one of the ones I think I want to talk about is, the, as far as the government themselves, the, the agent is kind of an interesting character. Because as it was starting, I almost thought, is this going to be like a Sam Spade sort of, you know, like, oh, he's going to solve a mystery and be kind of suave. But he's not really like that. <laughs> um, how, well, tell me about his character and how you sort of put him together. Yeah, so with Agent Schwaller, I think he was just, when I started writing the book, I had an idea that I wanted an FBI agent to be, I don't know, somewhat of a, a middling character in the book, but somebody who could help the plot move along, uh, somebody who would stir things up a little bit. Uh, then when I started writing him, I don't know, I just kind of heard his voice of this kind of needling, um, somewhat annoying, but a guy who considers himself to be a savant, who considers you know himself to be on a different plane of existence than anyone else. Uh, but in actuality is not very good at his job. Like he's kind of a mediocre guy, um, which is not like a bad thing necessarily, except for he doesn't realize it. Um, so I think, I don't know, like once I heard his voice and heard his dialogue, like I just kind of ran with that and stuck with that for the book. Cause it seemed to work most of the time. Um, if nothing else to inject a little bit of humor into what were often pretty bleak uh, storylines but I think it did work pretty well in the end, too, just because he is different than most FBI agents that we see. And he seems so much more human to me than than FBI agents are portrayed, like, say, on TV or in most movies, where they are kind of like almost superhuman and solving these things against all odds, where it was almost more refreshing to me to kind of just know that he's kind of just a normal guy and he messes up and sometimes he gets lucky and sometimes he doesn't, but you know, he's, he's also, you know, still just kind of plugging away and being himself against, you know, a lot of pressure to change. Well, and for him to be the, the representation of, you know, if we have a personification of the Patriot act, it's sort of like, okay, well, I guess he's not, <laughs> he's not even really that effective at doing anything with the information. So does that, does that sort of dampen the blow of the, the critics of the Patriot Act? Or does it mean that the Patriot Act is, well, we'd love to think it's run by a bunch of superhumans who are doing good things and able to accomplish goals and solve mysteries, but maybe they're not. I mean, was it in some ways meant to be your way of commenting on the, the policy? Yeah, I think so. You know, that it, it isn't often that effective like the same week this book came out there was a big story in the new york times about a, a specific spying program but i think it spent five billion dollars over 10 years and had produced a grand total of zero leads that led to any crimes that were stopped um so i feel like there is some good in domestic spying in the nsa like cia fbi obviously do a lot of great things but the return of return on investment for these programs is often like very dismal, uh, specifically for like domestic programs. It seemed like, so you know, it's just kind of questioning that like, why are we doing this? Like, like who are we as a society that wants to spend these massive amounts of money uh, for these programs that don't really keep anyone safe, that don't really solve crimes when we do have so much inequity in the rest of our culture. Um, I'm not sure the book explicitly says that, but that's kind of what I was thinking behind it. But but I think there is, you know, 
you can have all the tools, you can have all the information, but if you don't have the people that can actually make good use of that, then it's all pretty much much useless in the end. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Theodore Wheeler, author of the new novel In Our Other Lives, which is available wherever you get books. So you said how when Snowden came out with all of his uh, revelations that you, you, you were sort of able to sort of, I don't know, that contextualized maybe some older ideas that you had. I'm curious in today's world, whether it's just the Trump era or whether it's the pandemic, I mean, have has there been any uh, spark where maybe something clicked for you for what's next and trying to put together, I don't know what... I talked to uh, Amy Bonifons about writing in the pandemic, and she said basically it's it's too early to know what to do with this period. Uh, how how do you feel? Yeah, I I mean I've struggled to write like all summer, um, which was really sad because I had won a national endowment for the arts fellowship like in January, so I had most of the year set up to be in Europe working on a new historical novel uh, set in Europe. Um, so I'm still kind of doing that or I'm still kind of writing that novel, just not while in Paris, <laughs> which is less fun. Uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, as far as era, I did try to write a, a novella this summer, I wrote a novella that's kind of situated in the, the age of Trump. And I don't know, again, it's maybe somewhat similar to Schwaller, where I think there's a lot of menace to it and there are things happening. But most of the time it feels like a comedy more than anything else. So it's hard to like situate that, like to to balance the menace, menace and the and the humor of it when you're living it, especially just because you don't really know how things will play out yet. Yeah, I mean, I know they said that the Trump era would be great for comedy, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's really panned <laughs> out so far. But uh, so the historical novel, what's that? Oh, so this is set in World War Two. Uh, where a few years ago I had learned of this uh, this person, Jane Anderson, where she was a pioneering woman journalist. Uh, she was the first woman to fly in an airplane over London, was reported from the trenches in World War One, and had done all these amazing things. Uh, but then in World War II, she also ended up being a fascist and did radio broadcasts for the Nazis uh, for about a year and a half. Um, so it's just kind of this interesting idea of seeing this woman who has right, rightly, you know, kind of been pushed aside in history. Uh, but, you know, thinking about how she ended up there and why she did that. Um, so I wanted to write a book that was kind of around her, but wasn't really about her. Um, so I'm working on it where there's a younger fictional journalist who's also working in Paris at the start of World War II, who kind of comes into Jane's orbit. And then two years into the war believes that she's been granted this mission to go into Germany and assassinate Jane. So it's kind of like a fun hook to play with. And I don't know, I'm only like 40 pages into it, so I'm not sure how it'll all work out, but, but it is, I don't know. I, I do like doing historical fiction. I like researching and writing. Even in my day job, I work as a reporter uh, that's mostly research based. Um, so you know, getting into the files and reading old newspapers is really fun for me and just kind of figuring out what it would be like to to be in a place in the past and like what that experience would feel like uh, is always kind of fun. So I don't know, the pandemic hasn't been the worst in that way because, it, you know, I have a lot of stuff to do. And if I have time to get away from everything, then, you know, I have a different world I can put myself into. 
which I'm very grateful to have that most of the time. Well, it sounds like this project has some overlap, both with, you know, a lot of things that are in the news that people talk about now or the things around people's minds right now, but then also this sort of mission that takes somebody to some international, uh, you know, some goal, some international goal, I guess, uh, almost like a feeling that compulsion to go do something that seems sort of, I don't know, I don't, know if, I don't know what the word I want to say is necessarily, but you know, not not a conventional goal, not a conventional reason for someone going overseas. So, I mean, what 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 makes you drawn to that idea and go back to it multiple times? That kind of started around like Charlottesville or with the the punch a Nazi meme that was going around a lot, um, or punch a neo Nazi. But like, I don't know. Which I think in some ways, like I didn't not enjoy seeing a Nazi get punched, but. Also, as someone who identifies as more more of a pacifist and more of a humanist, it's like, is that a good thing that I like that? Or just kind of like, is that an okay thing to, to celebrate? Um, so that I think that's where it kind of started from. So this character who's more of the central character of the novel is raised in Eastern Iowa as a Mennonite. So she's definitely pacifist, uh, even though she's left that community. So it was just kind of getting into that notion about someone doing something that feels very necessary to them, but at the same time kind of invalidates or potentially invalidates everything else they believe in. So that was kind of the main attraction of just putting a character under all that pressure and and seeing what they do. So would you say, I mean, outside of your fiction, are you cynical about these uh, the the belief structures a lot of people have and the hypocrisy that tends to result from it? Um, probably a lot of times. I, I feel like I'm just not a joiner. So I don't know. I love people who have deeply held faith, who believe in things. Uh, and I'm very cynical of organizations built around belief. I guess I'll just put it that way. <laughs> Were you raised religious? I was. Yep. Did they? And both of my parents are ministers now. Oh, okay. So how, how do they feel about your, uh, your distrust of some of these things? Um, I don't know. I mean, we never like necessarily disagree on a lot. I think we don't really have a lot of arguments about anything. So maybe we're just very diplomatic in how we talk about it too. But I guess similar to like Elizabeth in, in our other lives, it's just, you know, if you're living by the example of Christ, even if you're not a Christian, like how are you not also, you know, kind of a Christian in a way, or like what is the important part of it? Um, you know, if you're living a good life, if you believe in people and you treat people well, then generally I think that's, that's good enough. Right. Yeah. Well, so I, another question I guess I have about this year, which, so we got the pandemic, this book came out in, was it March, May? It was, it was spring. Right? Uh, yeah. March 3rd. March. Okay. So I assume your plans for whatever sort of book tour or whatever kind of publicity you were supposed to do if in, I don't know, whatever this year is supposed to look like in terms of you have a book coming out, it's probably changed a little bit. So how's that been? Um, I mean, at the start, it was really tough because actually I was in Paris in March. So I had gone for, I was supposed to be there two weeks and I was there 10 days uh, and had to come back uh, after like the pronouncement that they might be closing the borders. Um, so that was really exciting and just a lot of weirdness, but I had done, I think I did three book events out of 16 I had scheduled to promote the book. Um, but then like those first few months, it was just kind of like going through the schedule when everybody was still kind of holding out hope that like, oh, maybe in two weeks, you know, we'll, we'll get back to normal. 
So it was just like, well, maybe I can still make my trip to San Francisco. And then it's like, nope, like that's not going to happen. Like, okay, maybe I can still go to Portland. Maybe the one in Brooklyn will work out or St. Louis. And so by like May, like when all of those dates had been crossed, I, f- I feel like then I felt okay with it, more at peace. But it was just kind of like reliving the trauma over and over again, where like in retrospect, you know, if I just like canceled everything in, in February, it would have been so much happier. But I don't know. It's hard to feel too bad about it just because so much stuff has gone on. And like, um, you know, my family's been very healthy and we're all fine. Um, so, you know, I'm grateful for that. And the fact that I had a book that got like washed away in the pandemic tide, you know, like is definitely not the worst thing that's happened in the world this year. Um, so I try to keep like a, I don't know, a, a bigger view on that. But it has been like a bad year for for anyone trying to promote any kind of like book or or show or album whatever this year it's just kind of i don't know a foolish endeavor i guess yeah well i mean i feel like it's taken until the last couple of months for people to really let go of that idea that oh it'll be okay in a month you know we'll be back to normal and now it seems like now we're finally just finding okay i guess this is what it's going to be like for the foreseeable future so i mean are you able to sort of like doing this show, are you able to sort of find new ways to get out and do publicity? And it's just, it's not on a compressed time scale with the release, but it can still be happening. And, you know, in some ways it's easier because you don't actually have to go anywhere. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a lot less stressful and just, I enjoy traveling a lot, but it does wear you out where, um, on past, like doing a book tour, you know, you just kind of get pretty haggard after a couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, I feel like it is coming together like this. I mean, I've done a few other podcasts over the summer and then especially with the holidays coming up, it feels like more stuff's coming together. Like with the bookworm is doing more, uh, the Willard Cather Foundation out in Red Cloud is putting together a Nebraska author showcase around the holidays and just more stuff like that. Um, so I feel like it is, I don't know, people are getting more used to that, you know, just it doesn't feel as traumatic to be on zoom all the time at this point as it did say in May or something like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. So, okay. Uh, where should people go to find the book, to follow you for all your new updates and then whatever else you want to plug here? Yeah. So my website is Theodore dash Wheeler.com. Don't go to Ted Wheeler.com unless you want all the latest news on Portland's mayoral uh, dealings. Uh, but you can find uh, any of my books at the Bookworm in town. Um, also, pretty much anywhere online that they sell books. So Amazon, uh, bookshop.org, they will all have copies. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. I had a, good t- I had a great time talking to you. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it too. That was my conversation with Theodore Wheeler, author, reporter, pub quiz host, college professor, roving bookseller. I'm taking these from his site. I didn't make up the phrase roving bookseller. I will give him credit for that. His new novel, In Our Other Lives, is available wherever you get books, as well as his previous novel, Kings of Broken Things, and his short story collection, Bad Faith. Riverside Chance is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarvin Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Follow Riverside Chats on social media for all our latest updates and make sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you never miss the latest episode. And you can also find our entire backlog up there. I'm Tom Noblock, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Listening.